0: If we haven't met, my name is Ian. I am our family ministry director here, so I get the joy of leading our kids and student ministry teams and working with you, your families, your kids, your students, and all of our volunteers and staff that help uh, make everything go, and it's, it's a joy and a privilege to be able to do that, um, and I love being able to share God's word with you today, and so uh, we are in the middle of our study of Hebrews Uh, We have been in Hebrews for a while. Uh, We started at the beginning of the school year, took a little break uh, during Advent, uh, but we jumped back into it with uh, the new year. And uh, Richard, last week, he kicked us off into chapter 11 of Hebrews. And chapter 11 is just this really beautiful chapter of what faith looks like getting lived out. If you have your Bible, you might actually see that heading somewhere in chapter 11 where it says uh, by faith or living by faith or faith in action. And really, that's a good sum of what the entire chapter is all about, that these are examples of people who lived by faith. And through the entire chapter of chapter 11, we're going to see a lot of different people who lived faith-filled lives, who lived their life uh, based off faith. And uh, we saw last week how faith is really important. We see in verse 6 of chapter 11 that it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You hear words like that, you're like, oh, okay, so this is an important stuff that we're talking about, right? Like uh, faith, without it, it's impossible to please God. And so, man, what does it look like to live a life of faith? That's what this whole chapter is all about, showing us what it looks like to live a life of faith. And I think a lot of us, though, uh, I think a lot of us in this room, we might struggle with saying we have faith. We might struggle with saying that we believe in God, we have faith in God, but like when we actually look at the way that we live, it, those things don't line up. That we, When we look at the way that we live, it's counter to the fact that we would say that we have faith in God, that we believe in God. Like, for example, it's like I say I want to lose weight, and that is something that I say that I want in my life. And But then when it comes time to make losing weight decisions, Nowhere to be seen, right? Some of you, I'm hoping that you're not laughing at me, but along with me that, that some you struggle with. But it's like when it comes to deciding what am I going to eat today, losing weight is nowhere in the thought process there. Because then I start thinking about the deliciousness that is a cheesy gordita crunch and a Baja Blast. And I'm just like, yeah, someone knows. Someone knows. Uh, it's really hard to make that kind of decision when I see that in front of me. But it's like I say I want to lose weight, but my actions don't line up. And I think when we look at our lives, some of us, we might say, hey, we have faith. We might say that we believe. But when we look at the way that we live, there's something missing there. And so as we look at some of these examples this morning, these examples of people who lived by faith, I want us to do a couple of things. I want us to take a look at the way that they lived. I want to see the things that they did in their life that classified a faithful living And then we also want to get to, okay, what caused them to live in this way? Not just what they did, but what caused them to live in this way? Because we want to be people who live by faith, not people who are motivated by other things in our life. And so maybe this morning, before we even jump in, you need to start asking yourself that question of like, man, what motivates me in my living? What causes me to make the decisions that I make? what causes me to be in the relationships that i'm in what causes me to do the things that i do think the things that i think what is causing me to do those things and then maybe start thinking like what if there's a better way to orient our life what if there's a better thing to be thinking on to be dwelling on that motivates us to live this faith-filled living So as we jump in, we're going to be in Hebrews 11. Uh, We're going to be in verses 8 through 22. But before we jump into that, as we walk through the text, you're going to see uh, this promise that is mentioned a lot in these verses. It talks about a promise and uh, the people of the promise. And before we jump into this text, I want to just uh, clarify what that promise is. The verses we're looking at today, uh, 8 through 22, uh, they take place in, uh, if you want to know the full story in Genesis uh, ver- uh, chapters 12 through 50, so we're not going to cover all of those chapters, which you guys are probably thankful for, but I would encourage you to take to bookmark it, come back to it at some point this week, get a full picture for what uh, we're talking through this morning, but in uh, this section of Genesis, we see these promises that God has made, and it's a promise that's mentioned in Hebrews, and I want to read a passage in Genesis 17, and it, this promise is mentioned in several other places, But this is a really clear explanation of the promise that we're going to see pop up quite a few times in our text this morning. So Genesis 17, uh, we're going to read verses 5 through 8. It will be on the screen if you don't want to turn back there. But it says, no longer shall your name be called Abram. This is God talking to Abram about to be Abraham. But your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and after you throughout their generations uh, for... Or, yeah, I think I missed a verse there. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you th- and after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Words are hard sometimes, guys. Uh, to, be God, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So this is the promise that we see echoed all throughout Hebrews 11,8 through 22. It's this promise that God made Abraham saying, "Hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bring you descendants, I'm going to bring you many people from you. They're going to be great nations, and they will go on from generation and generation forever. So it's like this promise of a people that you're going to be a people and you're going to have a people. And it's this promise of a place that he's going to give them this land. He's going to give them this land that they will inherit, that they will get, and it will be theirs from generation to generation for all of eternity. And we see that he will be their God. Like this is the promise that sets up the verses that we're going to be looking at today. It's the promise that sets up this faithful living that we're going to see Abraham and his entire family portray. And so, if you have your Bibles open up to hebrews eleven that 's where we 're going to be uh, kind of diving in at this morning, and as we go through this, really, we really want to see what does a life lived by faith look like? What does it look like to live a life of faith so let 's start in verse eight it says by Abraham, uh, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going the very first thing we see that by faith, Abraham does is that it says that he obeyed. Some translations even say that, that Abraham, when he was called, obeyed it 's this idea of this immediate obedience, this immediate obedience that 's the very first marker we see that by faith, Abraham had. He had this obedience, and there's a couple things about it that I want to really look at real quick. And it's that it was immediate that there was no delay. Uh, My dad, he used to say that there's a difference between real obedience and slow obedience. And he had this saying, he'd say, slow obedience is disobedience. Anyone ever use that on their kids before? No? Well, now you have a few extra lines. There you go. Uh, Slow obedience is disobedience. And for a while, I was thinking about that. And as a teenager, I was like, this is just my dad trying to convince me that I should stop playing video games to get him a Diet Mountain Dew. Like, that's kind of the process that I was thinking through. But now that I have kids, like, I understand it, right? Like, I get it. Uh, we have three toddlers, and um, they, listening is hard sometimes. And so we'll say stuff like really simple things like, it's cold outside. We're about to leave. You need to put on your coat now. And you would think that everything is going wrong, right? Like sometimes uh, there's a few different possibilities we might get. Very rarely we get the immediate, okay, sure, I'll go put on my coat, dad, you're the best. That, that very rarely happens. Um, it never happens. Uh, the other response is flat-out defiance where we're screaming and yelling and kicking, and then it just make, it makes for a really fun morning, I'm sure. And then uh, the other s- response that we get, this is probably the most common one. It's the slow, obedient response. And you guys might know some of the moves that it has along with it. Like it's the slow, obedient shuffle where they just kind of like put their head down and like shuffle their feet along, or maybe they'll stomp. And they, they end up doing what you want them to do, but they go about it in a really slow way. And what that really shows is that that slow obedience is really just an attitude of disobedience. Slow obedience is just an attitude of disobedience where they're saying in that moment that what they want to be doing is more important than what we're asking them to do. And I think sometimes we can view obedience that way, where it's like, God, I know you want me to do this. I know you want me to do that. I know you want me to go here. I know you want me to say this, but it's Maybe in a little bit. Let me finish up what I'm doing. Let me finish up this relationship that I'm in right now. Let me finish up this project at work. Then I'll go where you want me to go. And we have this tendency to have slow obedience. The thing we see from Abraham is it's not slow; it's immediate. He immediately goes to where God is calling him to go. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't prolong it. He just goes. The other part of the obedience that really struck me when I was reading this is that he had no idea where he was going. Like when you look at verse 8, it says, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Like who goes on a trip not knowing where they're going to end up going? Like that seems ridiculous. But by faith, Abraham obeyed and he, he obeyed immediately with not know, without knowing the immediate consequences of his obedience. He just went out. He was unsure of what the future would probably look like, what the land would be like, where he was going, but he went. I think a lot of times we can let the immediate future keep us from our immediate obedience. It's like uh, a lot of you guys know my wife and I, we, uh, we have three kids, uh, but we were doing foster care before we adopted them last year. And if I'm really honest with you, foster care was a very challenging thing for me to step into. Like, there was times where I did not want to do it. Not because I didn't want to love and serve the kids in our community, but because there's just so much that is unknown. Like, I've never had kids before, never changed a diaper. How am I supposed to do that, right? Like, what's that supposed to look like? Will these kids like me? Like, do they have other things going on in their life? Like, do they have medical issues that I'm not certain of that I don't know how that I'm going to do it? Like, will our 150-pound Great Dane eat them? Like, like these, are some of, these are some of the things that I'm thinking through as we're getting ready to go into foster care. And the future was very uncertain. And for anyone who's done foster and adoptive care, like, that uncertainty, you know, doesn't go away. You're like, oh, is this going to end up in adoption, or are they going to go back to biofamily? Because emotionally, those are two very challenging things on opposite ends of the spectrum. Even if it does end up permanently, like, what does that mean for their life in the future moving forward? Like, the future is so unsure. And I'm not saying this to say, hey, look at me, look at my life, the way that I did it. I didn't know the future. Honestly, I'm telling you this because I, I didn't really want to sometimes. Like, I almost didn't. But this was something that, like, our wife, my wife felt that we were called to do. That God was calling us into it. And we had community that walked alongside of us, that encouraged us and supported us. But guys, obedience is hard, especially when you don't know what the immediate outcome of it is going to be. Is obeying going to cause you to lose your job, to lose a relationship, to lose friendships or a house? What's obedience going to cost? The thing we see about Abraham's faith here is that he obeyed immediately without worrying about what the immediate consequence of it would be. That is the life of faith that we see here right away in verse 8. Then we keep going. It says in verse 9, By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. They go into the land that they're promised. They get into the promised land that, that God had promised them in the future. They get there, and what do they do? They live as foreigners. They live in tense, temporary temporary dwellings. They don't build cities. And the same attitude is also seen in verse 13. We'll get there later too. It says, these all died in faith, talking about Abraham, Sarah, and his family, Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Like they went into the land that they were promised and they lived as exiles. They lived as nomads. They lived as strangers. They didn't assimilate into everything that culture was doing. They didn't live how everyone else around them was living. They didn't worship all the pagan gods that were there. They worshiped Yahweh. They had a different moral ethic than everyone else around them. They didn't build cities, and they didn't try and make a great kingdom for themselves. They lived in tents. They entered into the land God had called them to go, and they lived a life that was different than everyone else around them. Because that's the kind of faith that we see in Abraham right here in these first couple of verses. That he obeyed God and he went to live as a stranger and an alien in a land that he was promised. And that's an incredible challenge to us. This idea of living as a stranger, as an exile. In the New Testament it talks about living as strangers and exiles as in putting away your worldly passions and the passions of the flesh. Saying that to live as an exile here on earth means that we need to kill our earthly passions... That this is not what defines us. This land and the people here are not what defines us, but there's a better home, a better future. And we see that's actually what motivated Abraham's faithfulness here. That's what motivated his obedience and his living out as a foreigner in this land. It says in verse 10 for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham obeyed, he went, and he lived as an exile. He lived as a stranger, not even necessarily because he wanted to, not because he thought that would be the best way to live, but because he was looking forward to something. Like we read that promise in Genesis, right? That God had promised him a land, that God had promised him a people. And he had that promise so much in his head that he was looking forward to that future land. He was looking forward to that city, He was looking forward to being with the builder of that city who is God himself. As we see a life of faith by Abraham in these two verses as marked by obedience and marked by living as an alien in a strange land, living as a nomad, living as someone who doesn't belong in the world that they are in because he was looking forward to something. He was looking forward to what God had promised. This city whose Architect and designer was God himself. That's what led to that kind of faith that we see there. And we move on. We see some other examples of faith. Starting in verse 11 through 12, it says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable, innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Like this is starting to get crazy, right? Like if you thought going from your homeland, living as a stranger, an alien is wild. Like this woman, well past her birthing years, conceives and gives birth to a son. And her husband, the father... They were considering him as good as dead. Like, how would you like that to be a description of your life? Ah, oh, they were as good as dead. Like, that is, that's in the Bible. Like, that's how Abraham is mentioned here. As good as dead. And I think we have to be really careful here. Because you could read these couple verses, and depending on where you're at in your life, you could be thinking that faith is the golden ticket you need to get what you want. Like we know that Abraham and Sarah, they wanted a baby. And it can seem that, goal, that faith is that golden ticket to get what they want. Because faith, faith isn't a golden ticket to get the things that you want here on this earth. It's not your golden ticket to that child you've been wanting. It's not your golden ticket to that spouse you've been trying to find. It's not your golden ticket to building the family and house and career that you want. Like, faith isn't your golden ticket to those things because God hasn't necessarily promised you those things. The thing that we see here in these two verses is that the thing that he had promised Sarah and Abraham, that he would provide nations from them, was the very thing that he was about to do for them. We see that God was faithful to overcome impossible circumstances to do what he wanted to do, to fulfill his promise. And the thing that we see about Sarah that I love in these couple of verses is we see that she considered God faithful. That despite her circumstances, despite her body was old, despite her husband was as good as dead, Despite all of those things, she considered God faithful to overcome her circumstances to achieve what he had promised. She had faith that God would do what he said that he would do despite the way her circumstances looked. Like, does your faith look like that? Does your life look like that? Where you're not overcome and overwhelmed by the circumstances that you're going through? by the things that you have going on in your life? Things going on at work, things going on at home, at school. Do you have the faith that says, I know this is what's going on over here, but man, God is faithful. He's going to do what he says he's going to do. That's what we see Sarah's life looking like. So full of faith that despite her circumstances, she leans into what God has promised, what God was doing. Then we skip down a little bit to see a couple other examples of this by-faith language, this by-faith life. In verse 17, it starts, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises uh, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Like this just keeps getting more wild, right? Like we go from obedience, going to a new place, uh, old woman being able to conceive a son to now Abraham being willing to offer up his son as a sacrifice. Like it keeps getting crazy. I almost put this in like the obedience part as we're talking through obedience because it's a wild example of obedience, right? That Abraham would offer up his only son, the son that God had promised him. And when it says that, uh, when it says that in verse uh, 17, that when he was tested, offered up Isaac, the word used there for offered, it's this idea that it was already done in Abraham's mind. That when God had said, "Hey, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac," Abraham was like, "Done. It's a done deal." Like in his head, that Isaac was already sacrificed in that moment. That's the kind of obedience he had. Like that's like when you go to Thanksgiving meal and you pack up your plate, and you already, your plate is full of food, right? You just filled it up, but you see that plate empty, and you're already playing your trip for seconds, right? Like, that's the, kind of, that's the kind of thing that Abraham is doing here. He's saying, yeah, I know my son is still here, but in my mind, I've already offered him up. That's a wild obedience, but I don't want us to just look at the obedience. I want us to look at, What was behind the obedience? And it was this heart of sacrifice. It was this heart of sacrifice that he was willing to offer up. He was willing to sacrifice. He was willing to lay down his own son that God had promised nations to come from. And it wasn't just this, oh, whatever, I'll just lay down the life of my son. But it was rooted in a confidence in God's faithfulness. Like his faithfulness here, it says that, Um, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Like that's the confidence Abraham had in the promises of God being fulfilled. He's like, yeah, if I kill my son, I know that God's going to raise him from the dead. He had confidence in God's promise and so he was willing to sacrifice everything. Now the application here isn't go home and kill your children. I don't know what kind of fight you're in. That would not be good. But it's like, is there something in your life that you're holding on to over here? Where you're like, man, this is a good thing. This is the thing I want. This is the thing I've been working for. But then over here, you have God asking you to lay that thing down. That thing that you love, the thing you've been working for, the thing you've been just striving your life after. Maybe even a thing that you feel like you've been promised. Are you willing to sacrifice, to lay this thing down because you know God is faithful. Do you have that kind of trust in who he is? Do you have that kind of trust that he is a God, that he is a promise-keeping God? Because we see that Abraham's life, it's marked here by that kind of faith, faith that's willing to sacrifice the thing that was most precious to him. Then as we finish out this passage, we see three really quick examples in verses 20 through 22. It says by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob when dying blessed each of his sons. Blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The main thing that I want us to see from these three verses is that These three guys, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they knew that God's promise didn't stop with them. They trusted that God would be faithful to his promise long after they were gone, long after they were dead, long after they had passed, that they blessed their children. In some cases, he blessed their children's children. And he made promise, a mention of a promise that they would one day leave Egypt and go back to the promised land that God had provided. Like they knew that God's promises was not limited to their life and they looked forward to the day that it would be completed. And so they died in faith, blessing their children, blessing their families because they knew that God would one day fulfill his promise. Because when we look at this section, verses eight through 22, we see all of these examples of faith. All these examples of a life that's lived faithfully. We see that there's a life lived faithfully is shown through obedience. And not just slow obedience when we want to obey, but an immediate obedience despite not knowing maybe what the future has to hold. We see it's a life living as strangers and aliens, as exiles, as people who don't belong. No matter what the world is doing around us, we know that a life of faith is living as strangers and aliens in this world. Not trying to do what the rest of the world is trying to do, but having our minds set somewhere else. We see that a life of faith is marked by trusting that God is faithful despite our circumstances, despite what we have going on in our life, despite the things that seem impossible. We see a life of faith is lived in being willing and ready to sacrifice the things that might seem most precious to you in response to knowing that God is faithful. And we see that life of faith knows that God's promises don't end with us, but they go on from generation to generation. That his faithfulness isn't locked into your life here, but reaches far beyond it. Because we see these examples of faith. We see that their faith in God changed the way that they lived. And so what fueled this kind of living? What allowed them to live in this way? They didn't just try really hard to be good people and obey. They didn't try really hard just to be obedient they didn't just work really hard to try and forget what was going on around them, to try not to be like everyone else in the world. Now, what motivated them to live this way, what fueled their obedience, what shaped their life was remembering the promises of God and considering God faithful enough to see them through. It wasn't them, it wasn't who they were, it wasn't that they thought they were the best, it was that they knew who got it. They know that he is faithful, that he will see through to his promise, that he will pull through. It was them knowing that God would see his promises through that allowed them to shape their life around that. And the crazy thing about that is they hadn't even met Jesus yet. That part hadn't been revealed. That part of the story hadn't been made known. They hadn't seen Jesus. And we, on this side of the cross, we get to see Jesus and we get to know that God is faithful to his promises. That when he says something, he is going to do it. He is going to see it through. Like just a few examples of those. In the Garden of Eden, we see that uh, God promises that a descendant of Adam is going to crush the serpent's head. And in Jesus, we see him on the cross and with his resurrection, defeating sin, Satan, and death. God kept his promise. We see him promise Abraham, yes, a land and a people, but we also see in this promise that he would be a blessing and his family would be a blessing for all nations, for everyone. And what greater blessing is there than life with God through the blood of Jesus Christ? God is faithful to see his promises through. And we see David, that God promised David that uh, the kingship would never leave his throne, that the throne would never leave his lineage. And right now we see Jesus from the line of David sitting on the throne in heaven above all things forever. Because God keeps his promises God is true to his word. When he says something, he is going to do it. And we can have confidence in that because he's proven himself faithful. He's proven himself faithful through through Jesus. He's proven himself faithful through his life, death, and resurrection. And because we can trust God, because we know that his promises are true, it should shape the way that we live our life. You could say it like this, that, God makes good on his promises, live like it. God makes good on his promises, so live like it. Because what what would it look like if that was the way that we lived our life? Knowing that God makes good on his promises. Like, What is a promise that God has made us that should shape the way that we live? I think a lot of it, it's the same promise that he made to Abraham. This promise of a better country, namely a heavenly one that we see in verse 16. It says that they desired a better country. It says they desired a heavenly one, the one that God had promised them. And that's the same promise that we as followers of Jesus, if you have faith in him that we receive, we receive that better country, we receive that better land, that heavenly land. I want to give you a glimpse real quick of what that's going to be like. Revelation 21 describes it like this. says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who has conquered will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Guys, God makes good on his promises, and this is our promised future as children of God. Eternity with him in heaven, away from sin away from disease, away from sadness, away from tears. This is the promise that we have in Jesus. So what does it look like to orient our life around this promise? To live like this promise is true because it is. I think we see really good application In verses 13 through 16, as it kind of describes Abraham and his children and the faith that they had. Verses 13 through 16 says this. It says, These all died in faith. Once again, it's talking about Abraham and his family. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they were seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So, what does it look like to live like God's promises are true? That he's making good on his promise? I think we see a couple things. First one, I think it's they were seeking a homeland. They were seeking and desiring the land that God had promised them. And because they were seeking that, they didn't turn around and go back to their old home. They didn't go back to their own ways. They didn't go back to their old family because they were keeping their eyes on what was to come. I think for us to keep, to live our life like God is making good on his promises, it means that we're not turning back to the way the world lives. We're not turning back to the way our flesh wants to go. We're not turning back to the life that we once had or maybe the life that the world thinks that we should have. We're not turning back to those things. We're walking in obedience. We're living as strangers and aliens in the land that we are in now because we know what land is coming. We know what future is coming and we know who we're going to be with there. So we forget the land that we came from. We forget the life that we came from. It says that they desired and were seeking a better country, a heavenly one. They lived their life with their eyes on the next. Their desire wasn't what they could get in this life. It wasn't in how much wealth they could accumulate, what kind of reputation they could have, how people would know them, the kind of city they could build. They weren't worried about the way they could make this life count for here. They were worried about how they could make this life count for their eternity in heaven, for that better country, for that heavenly one. So maybe for you guys, it's looking through your life this morning and this week, and it's thinking through, how how am I choosing to live my life? Am I living my life like this is the only life that I have? Am I living my life like this is the only place I'm going to live that this is the most valuable thing on earth? Am I living life like this is going to be my best life? Is that determining the decisions that I'm making, the habits that I'm creating, the things that I'm turning to? Or am I set on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and a life spent with him in eternity? Because when that is our focus, when that is our prize, when that is the thing that we keep our eyes focused on, it shapes the way we live. It shapes our obedience. It shapes the way we live here on this earth. It shapes the way we see our circumstances. It shapes the way we're willing to give and sacrifice. Because we want to be people who live like God is making good on his promise. And we get a really beautiful promise from God. In verse 16, it says, But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. When God introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush, he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob verse 16 here, we see that he was not ashamed to be called their God because they desired with their life. They desired, they sought after, they lived their life desiring the thing that he had already promised and accomplished for them. Because when we orient our life around God's promise and desire that for our life, he is pleased to be called our God. And what greater life can you imagine then being able to get to the end of your life, being able to say, Man, God, God was pleased to be called my God. God was pleased to be called the God of Ian. Not because he had it all together, not because he tried really hard, but he was desiring the very thing that God had created and accomplished for him. He was desiring a heavenly land. And he lived his life like it. That's what I want for me. And I hope that's what you guys want for yourself. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are a God who makes good on his promises. That there's not a single promise you have made that you have not seen through to completion. That in your eyes, everything that you've ever promised has already been completed. And one day we'll be able to experience that completion in heaven with you for eternity. God, until then, may we have our eyes focused and fixed on you. Focused on the promise that you have made that one day we get life with you because of the blood of Jesus. And may we live our life accordingly, walking in obedience, living as strangers and aliens. Not seeing our circumstances as bigger than your faithfulness and being willing to sacrifice and give it all away to you. God, may that be the way that we live with our eyes focused on your promises. Pray this in your name. Amen.